Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right, tonight we get an early start on our summer festival road trip. First stop is a Nerdapalooza for all you early music fans. And then Weston is anything but modest as he inducts another composer into the illustrious OBS Hall of Fame. Plus, in a particularly wacky two-minute drill, you get our hot takes and everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. And, of course, you can call us on the air. Get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories, 847-866-9687. You can also tweet us at OperaBoxScore or even post on our Facebook page. Oliver Camacho, great to be back with you in Studio One. Yeah, you know, um, as we transfer over from the main opera season to summer festival season, uh, we have these few weeks that where we're sort of doing shows that don't have a lot of news in them. But that's great. <laughs> that's a good chance for us to talk about music and listen and do things we don't get to do throughout the year. And uh, we are the show that has a episode every week, unlike some other opera podcasts who might be <laughs> Camacho throwing shade right out of the gate. <laughs> it's true. I wouldn't have it any other way. But when I first put this show together four years ago, yikes, I knew that it had to be every single week, that we needed that intensity and we needed that kind of coverage and we needed a bigger team. That's why somebody like Weston Williams came on board. Weston, great to have you here. Good to, have, good to be here as well. And I like being the big part of the team just physically. The, the modest there is the a team. large amount of me, so I feel like <laughs> I'm really pulling my weight, I like to think. <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't know if you're like hyping yourself or like being self-deprecating. Oh, well, you're I, worth your weight so. in information. Something, something <laughs> like that. No sooner than had Tobias like been so proud of the Philadelphia 76ers for being in the NBA playoffs. They, they uh, promptly exited last night against the Toronto Raptors. Mm. Um, local to Chicago, of course, the Milwaukee Bucks are heading uh, very close to the, the finals. Uh, Stanley Cup playoffs, not quite locked in yet so as and Stefanos Tsitsipas uh ousted Rafael Nadal from the Madrid uh tournament I saw that I thought that was a typo yeah I love this guy's <laughs> name Tsitsipas he's very handsome first of all but he has a great name that sounds like City Pass it does it makes me think of some sort of <laughs> Greek dish with like ground squid oh no, you're no, making no, me hungry in it. let's talk some opera Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. So since being founded in 1981, the Boston Early Music Festival, also known as BEMF, has been North America's premier celebration of early music with wall-to-wall -wall events, including fully staged and costumed opera, concerts by the foremost early music specialists, lectures, demonstrations, 
workshops, masterclasses, and an exhibition where you can buy your very own gut-stringed vial. <laughs> How much does that cost? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> <laughs> there are these exhibitions. Actually, it's the exhibition. It's like in the main hotel, and it's just all these vendors with all their instruments and people walking around with their tote bag, you know, putting their mouth on recorders and plucking Hello. harp <laughs> strings. And yeah, it's really awesome. You know, it's uh, like a fun <laughs> fact about me. I have uh, a, a hobby, which is really more of a hoarding thing mm-hmm. where I just constantly acquire instruments. I don't know how to play. So this is a very dangerous event for me. Probably, I literally yeah. own a theremin. I know Why? somebody who just bought a shofar and uh, is trying to find a shofar teacher here. In oh, Chicago. <laughs> I'll teach him how to play shofar. What makes you think it's a him? Or her. Okay. <laughs> Good. I'm so glad Fair you enough. said that. I need to hook you guys up. Okay. So artists who have appeared at the festival who have now entered the mainstream of opera include Karina Govan, Carolyn Sampson, Amanda Forsyth, Philippe Jaruski, Douglas Williams, what friend of the show, and Jesse Blumberg, to name a few. The Biennial Festival features a centerpiece opera given several performances throughout the week and one evening of chamber operas. In past seasons, Benf has reconstructed lesser-known or almost forgotten works like Johann Georg Conradi's Ariadne, Johann Matheson's Boris Gudunov, hmm. not Modest Mazorsky's, and <laughs> Agostino Stefani's Niobe Regina di Tebe. All of your favorite operas. <laughs> <laughs> All in one place. Now, when you yes. say biennial, uh, you mean once every two years, not exactly. twice a so year. So they, they actually have a concert series, and they have like a regular... You know, fall, spring concert lineup. Gotcha, but gotcha. The festival is what I'm talking about. But they call themselves Boston and the Music Festival, which is confusing. Uh, the <laughs> festival is only once every two years, but as an organization, they have concerts all the time. Gotcha. Got I'm on board. Okay. So composers like Luli, Monteverdi, Rameau, and Handel are pretty mainstream for this company and its audience. Beginning in 2005, Benf began to make commercial recordings of their centerpiece operas and some of their chamber operas. Five of these recordings have been nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Opera, and the recording of Charpentier's La Descente d'Orphée's Enfer won in 2014. Mm. That recording featured tenor Ernst Sheehan in the title role. Let's listen to another of his performances in this French Baroque repertoire from a different production at Benf. This is the entrance of Actéon from Benf's 2008 production of Charpentier's opera ballet Actéon. Aaron Sheehan, who is actually a friend of mine, uh, is literally the poster boy for Boston Early Music Festival. Uh, I mean, he has a career outside of Banff, but uh, I mean, you can't really go to Banff without seeing him in something. Um, and he's fantastic. And, you know, after working so many years with the stage director, Gilbert Blanc, uh, he really embodies, you know, the historical style. He's so graceful. He understands how to move and how to gesture uh, in this repertoire. Uh, he obviously understands the musical rhetoric, and his voice is clearly beautiful. So, um, definitely one of the things I look forward to most when I go to Banff. So, when you uh, when you say that he's historically informed, does that uh, extend to costume sets? Um, yeah. Uh, well, so Banff productions take full advantage. Of, I'm going to get there. <laughs> they take full advantage of the, the, of the abundance of dance music inherent in the 17th and 18th century, sure. especially though not exclusively in the French repertoire. So not only are you getting historically informed musical performance practice, you also get to see set design and costumes informed by scholarly research and choreography beautifully reconstructed from historical dance notation. I'm not saying that every opera I've seen at Benf has given me that special 
ooh, I feel privileged to have witnessed this moment in the theater. But their creative team and artists have a pretty good batting average with me. I feel like I want to throw in some kind of sports terminology in there. So, <laughs> um, no, I mean, like, I would well. say if I've seen, I mean, I've been going since 2007. If I've seen, what, at this point, six fully staged opera, maybe with the chamber operas, I've seen probably about 10 shows there. Mm. I would say five of them have given me that thing that we strive for as opera goers, that, that feeling. It's like, oh, my God, this is like everything is Confl- uh, conspiring here to make this special moment. You know? I think it's called Gesamtkunstwerk. <laughs> <laughs> so this year, the centerpiece opera is a return to a composer who seems to be experiencing a renaissance, Agostino Stefani. Oh, yeah. Stefani's works were extremely popular in his lifetime, and he is said to have been influential to Handel's career, whom he met in 1710. The opera Orlando Generoso, Stefani's fourth, will be given in its North American, will be given its North American premiere this year at Banff. The creative team, as always, includes co-musical directors Stephen Stubbs and Paul Odette, <laughs> stage director and set designer Gilbert Blanc, and costume designer Anna Watkins. The cast features tenor Aaron Sheehan, soprano Amanda Forsyth, and soprano Emirka Barat. Performances are Sunday, June 9th, Wednesday the 12th, Friday the 14th, and Sunday the 16th. Well, that's coming up soon. Yep. Uh, fun fact, uh, just before we uh, get into the next clip here, Paul Odette went to college with my dad and their old college buddies. That's my Aww. little connection to this uh, little company. And then they, then my dad uh, left music to become an architect. So <laughs> uh, to each their own. Here is uh, Philippe Jaruski in the aria Svere Amiche from the 2011 BEM production of Stefani's Niobe Regina di Tebbe. I was in the audience for this production, and it was indeed one of those moments that really galvanized my affection for what BEMP tries to do every year or every two years. Uh, it was insanely detailed, gorgeous and sensitive playing from the pit, uh, inventive and almost balletic staging. And of course, Philippe Drewski and his really unusual but charismatic you know, stage presence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All of those things just seemed to come together at the right, just at the right moment and to give me an experience that I will never forget. You should look this video up. This is from the YouTubes. Uh, just look up um, Philippe Jaruski or look up, better yet, the aria Sfere Amike, S-F-E-R-E-A-M-I-C-H-E. Gorgeous, gorgeous production. It's Opera Box Score and WNUR 89.3 FM getting the summer road trip going early and starting at the Boston Early Music Festival. George Cedarquist here with Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. Both those last two clips taken off of YouTube. Oliver, when I look at the footage there, it looks like there's two different performance venues. One for the first clip and one for the second clip. Yeah, they do have two performance venues. The chamber operas are typically performed at New England Conservatory's Jordan Hall Mm. with the orchestra on the stage with the performers. And the main opera, the centerpiece opera, uh, in the past couple of years has been performed at the Majestic, uh, where the orchestra is in the, in, the, in a pit, and uh, you have a little bit more, you know, proscenium, et cetera, you know. It's more room for like. dancing. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so the chamber opera performance on Sunday, June 15th, will be an encore of a program presented at BEMP's fall concert series, Versailles, Portrait of a Royal Domain. And it features two chamber operas, Charpentier's The Pleasures of Versailles and La Lande's the Fountains of Versailles, alongside selections from Lully's Atis. The cast includes baritone Jesse Blumberg, tenor Zachary Wilder, and soprano Teresa Wakeham. Let's listen to a little bit of the promo uh, video from The Pleasures of Versailles.
there's something about French Baroque music that is just so like deluxe to me and so rich. And I have to say that if Bemf specializes in something, it is the French Baroque repertoire. I have to say they also are great at early Italian repertoire because Stephen Stubbs is considered to be one of the foremost American scholars in this rep. But as far as like what the company can do as a whole with, you know, all the great voices that they get, the dancers, the costumes, um, the French Baroque is really their jam. Yeah, the the extended sort of French Baroque orchestra, I think, is something oh, yes. uh, so special. Uh, instruments. If you if you compare with other nations of the same time period, uh, th- just that we have now uh, companies that can do like this wide range of these specific instruments that you you, you couldn't get performances like this thirty years ago, uh, and it's just phenomenal. There's so, something too about this Baroque music which is very very addictive. I remember. The first Baroque opera that I worked on was Alcina by Handel. And at the first rehearsal, I was like, man, this is so boring. <laughs> I don't know how I'm ever going to get through this. And literally a week later, I was addicted and I couldn't stop listening to it. It's so perf- mm. perfect. There's something about that decapo form which just makes you just become mesmerized. Okay. Um, so uh, Zachary Wilder is going to be in the Chain Rapper performances, and he's another regular at the festival, even though he lives in France these days. Um, and early in the week, Zachary Wilder and lutenist slash guitarist Josef Maria Marti Duran will give an evening concert that features repertoire from their gorgeous recording from last year called Eternita d'Amore. When I heard this recording, I absolutely fell in love with it and this beautiful guitarist, uh, Marti Duran. Uh, here's a sneak peek of them performing one of Monteverdi's uh, Scherzi Musicali. This is Ecco di Dolci Raggi. Perché il tutto si cangia il nuovo cielo A due belli occhi ancor non dove Si si disarma il solito rigore, arda dunque d'amor, arda, 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 arda il mio cuore, arda, arda il mio cuore. Ah, oh, I'm crazy for a goat trill. <laughs> so um, besides the operas and the chamber opera, um, there are concerts literally all day long. Um, some begin at 5 o'clock in the evening. Uh, there's usually a concert at 11 o'clock at night. And in addition to that, there is the Fringe Festival, uh, which runs concurrently. And, you know, the uh, local artists or whoever wants to put on a Fringe concert, they come from all over the country to just be in Boston so that they can be heard by this audience. Uh, those happen literally all day long. So you can mm. go to something at like that starts at like nine thirty in the morning and hear a concert that ends at one o'clock in the morning. Yeah, it's it's crazy, right? Like it gets a little crazy. It's out I there. mean, I don't know. I've never been to Lollapalooza or what's the other one that happens in Chicago? Pitchfork. Pitchfork, you know? yeah. yeah. But it is to me that's that's my pitchfork, you know. <laughs> um, it's my tuning fork. No, that was not really a really good joke. Well, if you um, go to Lollapalooza, like you need to be wearing jean shorts that go up your butt. So, well, I mean, that's yeah, well, that's we what I would wear to this. and waistcoats. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, when you factor in the late night concerts, the Fringe Festival, the exhibition, the you know master classes, it really does. It's an overwhelming amount of things to do. And I just want to point out two more concerts that are happening: uh, a concert of Rameau featuring Teresa Wakem, Amika Barat, and Christian Imler. And a late night concert with Amanda Forsyth and Christian Imler. Those both happen on Thursday, June 13th. And Amanda Forsyth is the bomb. So I just want to tell you that, like, I've been going to this festival since 2007, and I feel like I got my, you know, my cherry popped or whatever you call it, you know. And <laughs> and now I really must go. Like, I feel like it's a reunion. I feel like all of my people are there. Uh, everybody's so much smarter than me, and it's just nice to be surrounded by people who really care about this that's, music. That's Unlike during something. this podcast. Yeah, I'm like, I'm really, I learn so much when I'm there, and I hear the most beautiful music. And if I've cried in a concert, I would say like nine times out of ten, it was at them. So you're you're going this year? 
then I'm yeah. hoping. I first need a job. So anybody knows of any yeah, jobs? Dude, you, don't, no. <laughs> you can also donate. Credit cards uh, are for. Go fund me to buy my plane ticket. Web, uh, link to their website is on our website. We're operaboxscore.com. They're B-E-M-F dot O-R-G. And you can, again, find a link to that on our website. Weston is anything but modest as he inducts another composer into the OBS Hall of Fame. That's next, only on Opera Box Score and WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear-a-hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer. Our enthusiastic, yet humble... Salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. It's Opera Box Score in WNUR 89.3 FM in HD as well. George Cedarquist here with Oliver Camacho and... Weston Williams. We and are... it's time for me to do a Hall of Fame. I'm so excited for this one. Uh, this one is a particularly special one to me. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm stuck here uh, with all these tenors. You know what I mean? We're, we're all talking about all these, uh, these tenor singers, all these sopranos. And uh, here I am. I'm just wanna, I just want to, like, find myself a good chorus, a good bass line, something Russian. That's right, everyone. We're doing Modes Mazorksky this week, and I'm very excited. <laughs> so if you didn't recognize that, that was uh, part of the uh, coronation scene from the beginning of Boris Gudinov, which we will talk about in great detail. Um, but the composer of that clip is, of course, the Russian composer Modest Petrovich Mazorksky. He was born in 1839, died in 1881, which means that he was put right in a very interesting and pivotal time in Russian history. And I think I think in order to understand uh, 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 Mazorksky, you need to understand to some degree what was happening in Russia at the time, because I I tend to think of his music and sort of the history of Russia going into the from the 19th century to the 20th uh, are really closely intertwined. Uh, so here we go. So he, as I said, he was born in 1839 um, at, at the height of sort of the Russian Empire. Um, as a matter of fact, the empire peaked in size in the mid-1850s when the composer himself was in his uh, teens, and nationalism was in all the rage in Europe. Uh, Mazorksky was uh, musically talented from an early age. He uh, learned the piano from his mother, uh, but it wasn't really his main focus. Um, like a lot of you know uh, young people and sort of traditional families in Russia, um, he was sort of expected to go into the mili- military, and indeed he did. He went in, uh, into a cadet training program uh, uh, to become part of the Imperial Guard. And because of this military background, 
he actually ended up meeting a couple of very interesting people that would have a big impact on music. Uh, the first person he met was Alexander Borodin, uh, who uh, was a uh, he was stationed with him. They he, they were working in the same military hospital. Okay. Um, and uh, Borodin uh, is one of the founding members uh, of the Five, the Mighty Handful. Uh, who knows what that is? Anyone in the audience know what that is? Raise your hand. No. Am I gonna have to explain everything? It's a group of com- <laughs> besides being a group of composers. Right. They're a group of composers. They're very uh, significant because. In this time period, because of the the uh, nationalistic impulses across Europe, you have this need in all these countries to differentiate themselves musically, culturally, from other countries. But in Russia, it, it took a particularly um, left-of-center kind of uh, uh, tilt to it because... Uh, politically, you mean? Uh, well, not, not just politically, but in terms of... Uh, in, in terms of the focus, often you find that uh, nationalism, uh, especially nowadays, tends to be pretty reactionary. Um, but in this time period, you have to understand that uh, while Russia was an empire, there was this huge disconnect between uh, the nobility who actually ruled Russia and the actual people. Mm-hmm. They literally, if you were in the aristocracy for much of uh, this part of, uh, part of history, you didn't actually, a lot of them didn't speak Russian. Uh, they spoke French. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, so having this sort of nationalism was not just, a, you know, we love our country, we love the empire. It was also kind of subversive in trying to upend this, culturally speaking. Uh, and uh, sort of the, the, the head of the group of the Mighty Five, the Mighty Handful, uh, was Emily Balakirev, uh, which I always pronounce wrong. Uh, he's probably the most important uh, in terms of Mazorsky's early development as a composer. He saw Mazorsky sort of playing piano, you know, going along, and was like, I need to teach this kid mm-hmm. something. Uh, and so he kind of sat them down. Literally within days, he started giving him lessons, teaching him all about not just piano music and not just older music that his mother had given him, but sort of the more avant-garde movements in uh, Western Europe and, um, and stuff outside of the piano realm. Um, and because of this, Mazorsky resigned his commission uh, and decided to try, <laughs> the operative word being try, uh, to be uh, a composer. Um, and uh, with uh, Balakirev and a few others, including Rimsky-Korsakov, they ended up forward- forming the Mighty Five, uh, who were dead set on changing Russian music forever. So uh, they were part of... Uh, they were part of a, a sort of the movement to, uh, in, to sort of you know move away from the old feudal structures. Um, uh, in nineteen, in eighteen sixty one, rather, uh, Russia finally caught up to the rest of Europe and abolished serfdom. And uh, it's no coincidence, I think, that uh, Vazorsky has his first big operatic hit just a couple years later, talking about um, a czar, so- Boris Gudunov. Mazorsky then was using composition and music to try and subvert Absolutely. the political and social structure. Absolutely, of that was his his goal, and I think it was the greater goal of the Mighty Five. Were they good at it? That's another question. Mazorsky, in particular, um, is a fascinatingly flawed artist. He is um, he's a very heavy drinker and he was considered a a heavy drinker by 19th century Russian standards. If that tells you anything, (laughs) definitely saying something. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, he had, um, he had a certain arrogance to him there. I found a really neat little quote. Uh, let me see if I can find it, uh, from, uh, actually, uh, Tchaikovsky. Um, this is what Tchaikovsky had to say about Mazorsky. Uh, he says, quote, Mazorsky, you very rightly call a hopeless case, hopeless case. In talent, he is perhaps superior to all the other members of the five, but he has a certain base side to its nature which likes coarseness, uncouthness, roughness. He flaunts his, he flaunts his illiteracy, takes pride in his ignorance, mucks along anyhow, blindly believing in the infallibility of his genius. And that basically means that if you look at sort of like all of Mazorsky's com- compositions, you find fragments. There's uh, half-sketched-out operas. There's uh, piano pieces, which never went anywhere. There's choral pieces, which were hugely ambitious, that never came to anything. 
Um, and this is sort of the defining feature of his uh, of his compositions. So this is an opera show, and I do want to talk about uh, his operas to a certain extent, but there's not many of them that are in any sort of playable format. Really, the only three that he sort of left in um, in any kind of usable uh, order that um, you know could be completed by someone else and have you know a finished product were Sorochinsky uh, Fair, Sorochinsky Fair, pardon me, Kovanchina, and Boris Gudnov. Of those three, uh, Sorochinsky Fair and Kovanchina were never completed. Hmm. They don't have endings. Boris Gudnov is the only one that has some sort of complete wholeness to it. I mean, that piece is absolutely massive, though. It's I mean, huge. if you're going to have one opera that survives you... It is, it is a, an amazing, amazing piece. It's based on an epic poem, uh, mostly in blank verse, by Alexander Pushkin, uh, the famous, uh, the famous uh, Russian, sort of the Russian Shakespeare. Um, he, uh, it, it's about, based on the real life of the actual czar, Boris Gudnov, mm -hmm. um, who uh, reigned in, I believe, the 15th or 16th century. Um, and it's, it's, it's very much a character study of this one very fascinating person. Uh, and because uh, Bozorkski was uncouth and uh, flaunted his ignorance, as, as Tchaikovsky says, he was not really interested in conforming to a lot of the operatic standards of the time. And as a matter of fact, it, uh, when he first came forward um, in 1869, uh, he sat down with an opera company and uh, handed them the score. Uh, to, and they would determine whether or not they would produce it. They th they're like, this is pretty good, but we're not going to produce it. And the re given reason was there was no prima donna role. Essentially, there was no love interest. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and so it was not performed like that in Mazorksky's li lifetime. Um, but then, uncharacteristically of Mazorksky, he sat down and actually finished, a couple years later, the 1872 version, which is now considered to be more or less the definitive version of the opera. And, uh, and that contains a lot of extra things. He was rooming with Rimsky-Korsakov at the time, who was the most trained of the five, the most westernized of the five. Mm. Um, and he gave him suggestions. Um, Boris Gudnov, the original version, is very um, interesting in that it doesn't really have arias and recitatives. It's got extended monologues, which are like arias, but there's no, uh, there's no recitatives. It's, it's all based in this sort of uh, Russian realism. Uh, it's very direct, uh, very impactful, but not necessarily beautifully melodic. Rimsky-Korsakov loved him some melody, loved him some beautiful <laughs> harmonies, uh, and so he suggested that in addition to creating this love interest, he alter, uh, he give it a, an extra scene in the middle, which takes place in Poland, it, which feels like it came from a completely different opera, and the which uh, it sort of did. I it, mean, it really did. Own, it is it's bizarre. Uh, it's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD. George Skeeterquist here with Oliver Cavaccio and Weston Williams. Weston is inducting Russian composer Modest Mazorsky into the Hall of Fame here, talking about Boris Godunov, by far the best-known opera of Mazorsky's. There's a version of it by Shostakovich. There is, and that's the next thing on the list. So this is where it gets really messy. The first time I encountered this opera um, uh, was a, a CD collection uh, belonging to my father, uh, and it was the Valery Gergiev um, sort of two editions. It had the 1869 version and the 1872 version. Um, but as I was reading it, reading the libretto, which came along with it, which is thick because it's literally two operas and they're practically different operas, um, the, uh, it kept referencing these other versions as well, which I had no idea about. And so I was just confused for years, just Googling away, trying to figure out what it was talking about. So essentially, there's the two versions by Mazorsky, and then there is uh, the version by Shostakovich, which is almost never done anymore. Uh, and then there is the Rimsky-Korsakov version. Hmm. This one is the significant one. When Mussorgsky was writing, he was very, as I said, breaking a lot of conventions. He emphasized weird rhythms, weird, uh, weird harmonies that sounded very unpleasant in the mid-19th century, especially to conservative Russian audiences at the time. Um, uh, very sort of subversive uh, subject material. 
Um, and, uh, and his orchestrations were considered pretty uncouth, and uh, that's something that even, uh, that even extends to today. I think a lot of people now appreciate a lot of uh, his harmonies and stuff, but they still, there's still people who are like, I'm not so sure about what he was doing with the orchestration here. Um, and uh, and it, it's really impossible to separate what was him just not knowing how to do it and what was him being absolutely brilliant. And so Rimsky-Korsakov, after Mussorgsky died, kind of took it upon himself to preserve a lot of Mussorgsky's works by putting out his own versions of them. These are not just reorchestrations. These are different editions. There are things that are cut. There are repetitions. I highly recommend you listen to full versions of both. It's fascinating. Well, um, shall we take a listen to Absolutely. So we're going to listen first. This is going to be from the Gergiev. Uh, this is Evgeny Nikitin. Uh, Nikitin. Uh, uh, performing uh, a part of Boris Gudinov. Uh, this, uh, I believe, the first one is going to be the original Mussorgsky version. Um, so as you're listening to it, uh, you listen for, th there's a dissonance in the brass section. There's um, sort of uh, more desperation in the voice because that's sort of the mode of expression because it's not very ha harmonically dynamic. Uh, and it's very almost coarse in a way. We'll listen to that and then we'll listen to that exact same clip from the Rimsky-Korsakov version. So as you can hear, very rough sort of uh, woodwind-heavy orchestration, um, almost kind of brutal in those vocal lines. And this is the exact same version with Rimsky-Korsakov. The harmonies are going to be the harmonies are going to be different. There's going to be things that are removed. It's going to be more beautiful, a little more soulful, but it loses a lot of that edge. It removes a lot of, I think, what makes Mussorgsky so interesting. It even goes, it prioritizes the, uh, the implied beautiful harmonies over previously established motives. In the first clip at the very end, you can hear the dun, 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 which is referenced back to that coronation scene, the bells, right. um, which, are, which were at the time a very interesting sort of harmonic set because they're based on these hinge chords, which are based on the inherent sort of dissonant overtones in Russian Orthodox church bells, hmm. which is a very different kind of sound than what you would expect in traditional Western harmony. Um, and to lose that, I think you do lose a lot, even though Rimsky-Korsakov was a brilliant orchestrator, uh, and he very much did save the piece by having this version made. So this is the version you hear for most of the 20th century. Uh, I don't believe the first, the first recording of the original orchestration 
uh, and the scenes weren't even in the original order, but uh, the original orchestration, uh, the first recording, I believe, was in 1971. Oh, and I should say that uh, what we heard, the Rimsky-Korsakov version just there, that was Nikolai Guirov um, uh, performing under uh, Herbert von Karajan. Um, but but the, uh, uh, once you sort of hit sort of the Soviet era, uh, particularly Dmitry Shostakovich and Sergei Prokofiev went back to Mazorsky, mm. And Shostakovich, in particular, um, used Boris Godunov-like uh, techniques and often direct quotes in order to um, in order to put across messages in his music that couldn't be expressed textually, or else he would have been shot under the Stalinist regime. Uh, for example, at the beginning of uh, Boris Godunov, there's that great chorus uh, where they're um, being forced to cheer for the new czar. Uh, it's a very much a recurring motif, especially in the 1872 version. Um, and uh, in uh, several of his symphonies, you hear little brief, brief, like blink and you'll miss it references. Um, of course, no, no text in the Stalinist era. Uh, as a matter of fact, Shostakovich didn't write operas for most of his life because he was terrified that if he put text there, he would be killed. Uh, and, but he, by using, referencing Mazorsky and these sort of, uh, these ideas that Mazorsky captured as part of the soul of what would become modern Russia, it really added to this uh, library of meaning that you can express through music on a purely subtextual level. And that's one of the things that I love so much about Mazorsky. Uh, one more complaint before we move on uh, about Rimsky-Korsakov's version. Um, Rimsky-Korsakov ended the opera with Boris dying at the end. Spoilers. Um, big dramatic scene. But the 1872 version ends a little bit differently and a little more poignantly. And we can just close out with, uh, with this final clip. Um, this is the Holy Fool, the Euro Divi, um, which is a concept I can't, don't have time to go into right now. Um, but he's, uh, he's sitting and rocking back and forth and singing, weep, weep, bitter tears. And there's a cycle of repeating notes uh, finally ending on the bassoon. Um, which signified this is a repeating cycle throughout Russian history um, that just keeps going and won't stopping. It's incredibly subversive, incredibly beautiful, and a great way to end the opera. Weston Williams inducting composer Modus Mazorski into the OBS Hall of Fame. There's some zany things happening in opera land in the past week. That's all up next on America's Talk radio show about opera on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, so listen up. Here's everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. Opera Australia's opening night was disrupted last week when 90-year-old Australian composer George Dreyfus caused a commotion by shouting over the pre-show announcements. Police had to be called in to escort the megaphone-wielding composer out of the theater. Dreyfus said he was protesting an incident when the company refused to perform one of his commissioned operas in 1969. Due to a lack of funding, Pittsburgh Opera is postponing the world premiere of Mohammed Farooz Bhutto, an opera based on the political dynasty of Pakistan's Benazir Bhutto. Dendro Catan's Florencia and El Amazonas will replace the opera. Christoph Volokowski's new production of Shostakovich's Lady Macbeth of Mitzensk has been accused of, quote, disrespectful plagiarism by Argentinian director Marcello Lombardero. Both productions have a similar take of transferring much of the action of the opera to a slaughterhouse. A recent letter to the editor in the Portland Press-Herald in Maine was redacted by the same newspaper that published it last week after it became apparent that the letter, which described the attendees at Opera Maine's recent gala as, quote, eating like farm animals and wearing overalls and baseball caps, all turned out to be a hoax. The opera company wrote a response to the hooker saying that the description was not accurate and anyone would be welcomed in any attire. The feel-good story of the year is the search for the child who broke with concert discorum in his reaction to a performance by Boston's Handel and Haydn Society is over. The uh, Society's president and CEO, David Sneed, appealed to the public to find this young audience member. Turns out to be nine-year-old Ronan Matten. We'll get to that in one second. Over to the DL. Joseph Kaleja has canceled a Rigoletto in Vienna. Jonas Kaufmann canceled performances of Tosca in Paris. And on this day, May 13th, one half of Operetta's most famous power couple, Arthur Sullivan, was born in 1842. Mozart's first true opera, Apollo and Hyacinthus, was premiered in Salzburg in 1767 when he was 11. British conductor and scholar Jane Glover was born in 1949. And Amy Beach's Cabildo premiered in 1995. That is your two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box School with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Adorable, so so sweet. So that was eleven year, nine year old. How old? Nine year old. Nine year old Ronan Matten saying "Wow" at the end of uh, a Handel and Haydn concert performance of um, Mozart's funeral Masonic music. Music, I forget what that piece is called, but <laughs> but anyway, such a great the, uh, story. Yeah, so, Masonic funeral music. Masonic funeral music. So this story was breaking all week long, mm-hmm. and the first couple of stories were a plea from David Sneed of Handel and Haydn asking, who is this kid? Anybody know this kid? Please, you know, get in touch with us. So uh, the search was on. It was a manhunt. And I thought they were going to be mad at this kid. They were going to, like, you know. Destroy him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> make him an example. <laughs> Never make a noise at a concert. You know? <laughs> but it turns out they really wanted to just thank him because he really inspired the audience and the orchestra with his enthusiasm. And so they found the kid. And it turns out his grandfather took him to the concert. 
and uh, Ronan is on the autism spectrum, and he is primarily nonverbal. Hmm. And, uh, you know, David Sneed wanted him to get a chance to meet the conductor, Harry Christophers, and they did that, and they gave him a recording of that performance. And, uh, yeah, it was just like a really great experience for this kid. And this well, then the follow-up after that, of course, was that he'd actually just been playing Pokemon Go on his phone, <laughs> and he said, wow, because he caught Jigglypuff. That's wow-worthy right there. So, really quickly, does anybody know Amy Cab- Amy Beach's Cabildo? Yeah, I've listened yeah, to definitely. it a couple times. Yeah. yeah, I've never heard it, so I'm glad that somebody knows it well enough to... It's like the go-to chamber opera if you want to find an American female composer who's written prior to... I don't know, 1978. <laughs> okay, you mean after 1978? Yeah, it was. It was after. I believe yeah. it, that was in the. It was a 90. It's a 90s opera, right? Yeah, 95. O- yeah. Only 90s kids will remember this. Yeah. Um, Cabildo by Amy Beach. Uh, yeah, it's it's got some charm to it. It it feels very. Um, it it's, it feels very Britney to me in in some ways. Um, uh, but yeah, it's a it's a big one. Then of course Arthur Sullivan um, of Gilbert and. Uh, always a fun time. Uh, I was humming Pirates of the Penzance on the way here because of that fact, um, which, you know, not always a good thing because that'll get stuck in your head forever, man. Um, my, I think my favorite story from this week is the <laughs> is um, is the poor composer uh, shout, <laughs> shouting with his... Uh, you didn't mention this in the story, but um, George Dreyfus, uh, when he was shouting uh, down uh, at the orchestra pit, he had he somehow smuggled in this huge megaphone uh, like uh, the the people in charge had no idea front of house had no idea how he got it in and he he smuggles it all the way in there he waits for like the uh, the pre-show announcements to start and he starts yelling through it but uh, apparently it was out of batteries or something so he just like put it down and just like yelled even louder and it was just uh, for something that happened in 1969 uh, it's it's a bizarre... There's something in the water this week in Opera Land, guys. It, it, it feels like, okay, if you've sat on your bile that long <laughs> and you come up with this plan, you're going to check the batteries in the <laughs> damn megaphone and you're going to make sure that the thing works. I, I just, just to go back to Cabildo really quickly, I was not talking out of my you-know-what. The piece was written... In 1932, but oh. the first fully professional production was indeed in 1995. Okay, there we go. So only, 30, only 30s kids will remember. Well, these. I mean, we were we were all right. I mean, I said prior to 1978. I just okay. picked a year out of. I just saw random. the show notes. 1995. I was like, hmm. yes, no, but but Oliver, you were correct. That was the first time it was it was performed. I, I'm sorry, I'm playing catch up here on this two minute drill, man. Let me just say, last week. I was so behind. Okay, so the International Opera Awards had been over for a week. Yeah. Right. And I said they were yesterday. <laughs> I mentioned the Kentucky Derby. The Kentucky Derby, I thought, was later on during our show week. It had actually been the weekend prior. <laughs> I don't know what was going on last well, week. And now I'm playing catch-up for the Arthur Sullivan thing. Ben, my son, and I, we went to see the Gondoliers when we were back in um, Ann Arbor over spring break. And I just, I love Gilbert and Sullivan so, so much. And I love finally having uh, the opportunity to share it with my son. I don't think there is any better gateway drug for our children. (laughs) What a great sentence. Than Gilbert and Sullivan. (laughs) Hmm. What do you think? What would you start your kids with, Oliver? uh, With Buto, the (laughs) opera. (laughs) (laughs) Buto. No, I mean, poor Mohamed Farouz. I mean, he's a proven composer. And, you know, he had a chance to workshop Buta. I don't know if he workshopped it with Beth Morrison projects or whatnot. Or, but, I mean, this is a work that they, you know, they, Pittsburgh put their, you know, they, they put their bets on him. And then they decided to change it. And they haven't announced when they will premiere his work. But, you know, you, if they're trying to cultivate South Asian audiences, you don't do it by announcing something and then taking it away. Well, you know, I think, uh, um, I think you know what's going to happen in 50 years. He's going to come in with the megaphone <laughs> yeah. and just start, <laughs> clearly, <laughs> just start yelling. Um, I also want to say that uh, going back to the on this day, um, Apollo and Hyacinth. Um, I actually, when I was first learning about opera, I was crazy about Mozart operas, and I listened to as many of them as I could. And I even bought a recording of Apollo and Hyacinth, and I like it. And I just listened to one, like, 
a couple weeks ago from start to finish. I like it that much. And like it's very young Mozart, lots of da capo, lots of, you know, opera seria structure. Isn't that innovative? <laughs> but his melodies, he was 11. <laughs> his melodies are there. And there's dude, there's melodic genius even when he was 11 years old. So, yeah, I really like that piece a lot. I, I've only you listened it? to it. I only listened to it once, and then mostly just because you know it was the first one. You know, if an opera has some sort of unusual tag on it, I'm I'm legally obligated to listen to it yeah. at least once. Which is and why all the I, versions of it, the Mussorgsky <laughs> and the Rimsky Korsakov well, versions. I, yeah. I, I literally have like eight or nine versions. Have you listened of to all the Leonoras slash Fidelios? Uh, I have not. Okay. I've only I've listened to two versions of uh, okay. the normal Fidelio and one of the Leonoras. Okay. I think that's enough. I've listened to all the overtures, so the, it, I'm caught up. Th this lead about the um, Wolakowski production of Lady Macbeth of Mitzensk, fabulous opera, it's on my bucket list, by the way, mm. um, being plagiarism or plagiarized off of another production some years before. Let me just say this. There are no new ideas anymore in <laughs> opera, okay? So this isn't intentional. This isn't one director ripping off some other director's idea. Everybody sees everybody else's work. Many people have the same idea, even years and years apart. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're not aware. I do not buy for a minute that this was intentional Plagiarism. Well, even uh, Warlikowski uh, Warl uh, uh, actually pointed out um, uh, uh, in response to the accusation of plagiarism that uh, there was actually a version of Lady Macbeth that also had the slaughterhouse motif even before his. Exactly. The David Pountney production in 1987. Look, this isn't rocket science, okay? When you look at these operas, um, something like Lady Macbeth, which is not done that often, right. which is uh, a has a very harsh, bizarre world that Shostakovich, like, your palate is going to be limited. There are no new ideas anymore, <laughs> and it's not intentional. I do think that, though, there, there, there's something to be said that when, when you have, for, I mean, it's not even that old an opera, you know, when you have three productions like that, um, which all have the slaughterhouse motif, you do kind of have to start to... I get it. I mean, I, I know the piece very well. I know where the slaughterhouse idea comes from. There's lots of sloppy eating of the mushrooms and all this and all that, and it's a very dark and grimy piece. Um, but I think it does sort of give ammunition to sort of the anti regi theater folks, you know, when, when they see something like this and like, oh, they're all just doing pigs and it doesn't make sense and, you know, whatever, whatever. <laughs> like, like I say, man, look, I have a production coming up in October and, like, one of the characters works in a slaughterhouse. Are you sure it wasn't <laughs> jealousy because Varlachowski just won the International Opera Award for his production of Janacek's House of the Dead. Oh, House, I, I so. bet that has a, some sort of factor uh, to it. I would not be surprised. He's just very on edge right now. Do you, do you ever feel like... Uh, uh, do you ever think there's a point for you, George, where, where something goes from? Uh, if you're just, if you're directing something, at what point would you say another director's production, the same opera, has to get to before you would consider it infringing on your territory? Amateurs borrow, professionals steal. Oh, classic. That's all I'm going to say. Let's wrap this show up. <laughs> oh, bad goal on Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD for Opera Box Score. Great show. Very tight show. So yeah. Santa Fe Opera very recently announced that in 2020 they will be presenting the world premiere of Huang Ro and David Henry Huang's M. Butterfly based on the 1988 Tony Award winning play. A uh, friend of the show, Kangman Justin Kim, will make his company debut in the gender-bending role of Song Liling. I'm sure we'll talk more about Santa Fe's trio of world premieres on future episodes. That's so awesome. Huang Ro, of course, was on the show um, last month, I think it was. You're going to want to go back to the archives and listen to him. He is such a lovely guy. He's such a great composer. What a fabulous spot for him to be in with Santa Fe. 
And I've got a good call as well. Love Wounds, Chicago Fringe Opera's collaboration with Latitude 49 in a program of works by Christopher Cerrone. Or is it Cerrone? I can't. Uh, Cerrone. 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 I was wrong on all counts. It opens May <laughs> back, 17th. Back in Sicily, they say Cerrone. <laughs> Cerrone. Uh, it'll, that'll open on May 17th, and it'll run through the 25th. The cast includes multiple friends of the show. Uh, we got uh, tenor Jonathan Zhang, soprano Claire DeVizio, and conductor Catherine O'Shaughnessy. Visit Chicago. FringeOpera.com for more details. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about Opera. The general manager at WNUR is John Williams. Nope, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at VoxerShorts.com. V O X E R S H O R T S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please, leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcast. We've had a lot of listener mail recently. Of course, you can write into operaboxscore at gmail.com. We do read every letter that we get. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho for Weston Williams. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera out loud directly after the final chord of the performance. We're back on Monday, May 20 at 9 p.m. Central. More opera stories, more hot takes. Join us. This is WNUR 89.3 FM in HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.